The readings this morning are from uh, Revelation and John, the Gospel of John. First one is from Revelation. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He threads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The second reading is from John, the Gospel of John. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas' betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. morning. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. We'll be celebrating, our family will be celebrating at Shake Shack after the service, newly open. Don't let Brittany try to tell you that that's for me either. Um, She'll be getting, well I won't tell you what she'll be getting, that's kind of embarrassing, but more than one item, let's just say that. Um, Anyway, happy Father's Day and we're in the, the second of three messages this morning from the book of Revelation, wrapping up, capping off our 21-week series through the whole Bible. We said last week we're looking at these last four chapters of the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, and what we said last week is there are three images of Jesus that come to the fore in these, these last four chapters. First, we see him as a groom at a wedding. Second, we see him as a general riding on a horse. And third, we see him as a king on a throne. So we looked at the first of those three images last week, a groom at a wedding. We're going to look at the second and third images this morning, a general on a horse and a king on a throne. The passage you just heard read, this, this passage from Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is what's commonly known as the, the second coming or the, the second advent or the, the parousia is the, the Greek term which means appearance. It's the end of the story. It's how the whole thing wraps up. We finally got here. No, you didn't think we were going to make it, but we did. In 1961, January 1961, a few days before taking office, John F. Kennedy calls Billy Graham down to Florida 
for a round of golf, which was kind of surprising to everybody. He had kind of made it known that he wasn't a huge fan. Um, so a little weird, but so they, he, Billy Graham goes down, they play golf, and on the drive back to the hotel, Kennedy pulls over the convertible and stops the car and says, Billy, do you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again to earth? And Billy Graham says, yeah, I do. And JFK says, well, why do I hear so little about it then? Why is nobody talking about this more? Seems like a pretty big deal. And he's right. It's it's not talked about enough. The end of the story is not talked about enough. So we're going to try to remedy that a little bit this morning. What's the second coming all about? These two images we see in the last four chapters of Revelation give us a lot of what we need to know. General on a horse, king on a throne. Two things are going to happen when Jesus comes back. First, he's going to triumph over his enemies. And second, he's going to take all power unto himself. He's going to receive all glory. General on a horse, he's going to triumph over his enemies. And second, he's going to take all power and glory unto himself. That's a familiar plot line. You, know, you see that in countries all over the world every year. It's, it's called the military dictatorship. You know, some guy comes in and defeats all his enemies and then takes power. So we, we've seen this story before play out lots of times, but it's with, you know, these, these little guys that think they're God. And this is it happening with God himself. The, the, the plot line is similar, but the facts are different because this time it's actually God himself. Defeating his enemies, taking all power in himself. We'll look at both of those this morning. But before we do, let's pray. Father, as we look this morning at how everything wraps up, I ask that you would give us a sense of awe and and even fear, God, a sense of healthy, holy fear towards your power and towards your authority and towards your glory. God, I pray that you would put it in our hearts to turn toward you, to submit to you, to place ourselves at your feet. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So first, he he defeats all of his enemies. He triumphs over all of his enemies. Now, I think saying that today, 21st century, especially, I mean, in this neighborhood, a particular neighborhood more than anywhere else, Talking about, okay, Jesus defeats his enemies, this mix of like religion and battle. Um, pretty much the scariest type of language there is out there today. You know, it makes us very, very uneasy. So the first clarification is uh, it's Jesus triumphing over his personal enemies, not like the, the church triumphing over her enemies or Christians triumphing over their enemies. There's, there's no. A premise for that in scripture. The only thing it talks about Christians doing or the church doing is laying down sacrificially. But Jesus himself personally will come and triumph over his personal enemies. So then, then it shifts from uneasiness to confusion. Well, wait, Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself has enemies? I mean, I know people don't like Christians or don't like organized religion, but everybody likes Jesus. I mean, nobody, nobody is an enemy of Jesus. I mean, enemy, that's a pretty strong word. It means you, they hate the guy. Nobody hates Jesus. Who hates Jesus? But what Scripture says is pretty much everybody, pretty much everybody hates Jesus. That's something we've talked about before here, and we're going to look at it again this morning. You see hints of this in the, the second passage that was read from John 18. A couple sentences in, in, in that passage. It says, The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers. Seems insignificant, leading priests, Pharisees, Roman soldiers, but, but what John, the gospel writer, is taking pains to show here, 
the other gospel writers do the same thing, is that it wasn't just one group that was responsible for the death of Christ. So historically, as a, as a historical truth, he's got the, the Roman soldiers and the leading Jewish authorities, which is only two groups, but it actually can slice it a lot of different ways. Not only is that Jew and Gentile, they're both there responsible for it, but it's also blue-collar social cultural elite. It's also kind of pagan, heathen, and religious person, Bible thumper. And all of those groups are represented in being responsible for this arrest of Christ. But what Scripture says elsewhere is that this, this passage here is just kind of narratively depicting a, a truth that's really a lot more universal, which is that everybody, really, their natural disposition, everybody hates God. Everybody would like to lead God away in chains, to arrest him, to be master over him. It's not just these people here in the garden. Everybody in every age, this is their natural tendency. Say, and, you know, talking with people about this, the Bible says it's universally true. My experience is it's also universally true that most people feel like they can't relate to this. Okay, I, you know, I might not believe God the way I should. I might not do everything that he says I'm supposed to do, but I don't hate him. I certainly don't hate him. But what Scripture teaches is that since Eden, since the Garden of Eden, since this initial rebellion, the human heart hates, is set against anything anyone that threatens its own self-sovereignty, that threatens its own self-sufficiency. God does that more than anybody. This is Satan's suggestion to Adam and Eve in the garden, is you don't have to submit to him, you don't have to listen to him, you don't have to do what he says, you can be your own master. And since that day, it's been part of our makeup, it's been part of who we are. We internalized that suggestion, and now our number one concern as human beings is maintaining that self-sufficiency, maintaining self-authority, being your own God. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus is always met with one of three responses. He's either, people are afraid of him, they're terrified, they say, just please leave, just go. Or they're, they're furious with him. They start to plot to take his life, or they actually try to take his life right then. Or the, the most traumatic thing that a person can do, that any human being can do, they surrender. They give up. They place themselves under him. Those are the three responses. No one says, ah, very interesting. Oh, that, that's, what, a, what a nice teaching. Let me see how I can apply that. You know, I, I can think of some ways that that might be useful to me. No one says that. Why? Because his claims are remarkably bold and remarkably offensive and um, inconvenient to someone who wants to maintain control. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father, your mother, your own life by way of comparison. I'm number one. Makes everything within us that wants to maintain our own control over our own life rise up. St. Augustine uh, tells this famous little story in his confessions about when he was a boy uh, walking along and uh, stealing a pear from an orchard. And he's reflecting on this years later, and he says, it was weird. It was weird that I did that for a couple of reasons. One, I wasn't hungry. Two, I don't like pears. Why? Why did I take the pear? He says, I remember. I remember distinctly what I thought. I took the pear because somebody had told me not to. Somebody had told me it's forbidden. Somebody had told me you can't. And I said, no, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be captain of my own soul. If a prohibition against stealing a pear does that, how much more so do these claims of Christ to, to be Lord of your whole life make that rise up 
within us. The Bible says everybody hates God. Everybody hates Jesus because of these claims that he makes on us. Everybody wants to lead God away in chains, so to speak. How does Jesus respond to this hatred toward him? He responds in two different ways at two different times that he comes. The first time he comes, he responds by laying down. He just takes it. Isaiah uh, 53 says he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He said It says he was treated as one who uh, people can't even look at. They turn their face away. That's what Jesus received when he came to earth. And, you know, the greatest manifestation of humanity's hatred toward God is that when God comes to live with us, we kill him. When God comes to live among us, he's murdered. And Jesus just takes it. He just receives this time after time after time. He takes it, he gets knocked down, he gets back up again, only to just march to his own death. He marches to his own death with a cross on his back, the most humiliating episode of all at the end. This is maddening to his inner circle, to the people that are kind of his gang at the time. You see here in the passage that was read earlier, when they come to arrest him, Peter says, no, we don't have to just take this. And he pulls out a sword and starts swinging. An earlier passage, they're having a conversation. Jesus actually says to his disciples, look, this is where it's all headed. This is going to happen. I'm going to die. I know how it's going to end. It's not going to end well. Peter pulls Jesus aside, says to him very sternly, no, that's not how it's going to happen. That's not how it's going to end. We don't have to take this. And Jesus says, get out of my way. Get out of my way. And he says to Peter in this passage, when Peter pulls out a sword, put it back. Should I not drink the cup of suffering the Father has given to me? What's going on? There's a divine purpose behind this hatred toward Jesus that he's experiencing at the hands of his enemies. God has a plan to use this hatred, to use this anger toward himself for good through the death of Christ, absolving the sins of mankind. And when you, this is this a paradox? Yeah, it's a paradox. It's difficult to understand. People push here and say, well, wait a minute. So then did, did God kill Jesus? Was he just engineering the whole thing? Is he a puppet master? If there's this divine plan the whole time, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not it. It's not it. It's difficult. You have to hold on to both. The one truth is the enemies did it. The other truth is God had a plan behind it. He didn't engineer it. He used our natural hatred toward him for good. He turned something that was really evil into something good. And that's why Jesus just lays down this first time around in the face of this anger toward him. He lays down before it and takes it because there's a divine purpose. There's a divine plan. He's following that. What scripture says is that that is not going to be his approach when he comes again. He's not going to respond in that way when he comes again. Same guy, really different approach. You heard it read earlier. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Very different picture. Very different picture of the same person. We last saw him walking with a cross on his back, and you've got Pilate on a horse, Herod on a horse, He's walking. Now he's the one on a horse. 
He was before kneeling in the garden, sweating blood. Now he's up on a horse. We saw him before his eyes are tired, filled with tears. Now his eyes are like fire. Before he's on the cross, sign above his head, king of the Jews intended ironically, you know, making fun of him. People walk by and you're saying, wait, I thought you said you were. I thought you said you could. I thought you said you would. You know, it's a big joke. Comes back and embroidered on the robe, engraved in his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, no irony intended. I'm just completely straight. This is who I am. It's a very different picture of the same guy. Before a crown of thorns, now the crowns of heaven. Very different picture. And he tells Peter to put away his sword in the garden, and now you see a sword coming out of his mouth. He doesn't even have to lift a finger. By his word, he conquers. The Bible says that God tolerates rebellion against him for a time. That he tolerates people rising up against him for a time. But that time will end. The rebellion will be put down. The rising up against him will be struck down. And people have a problem with that today. People say, well, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't really believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God that strikes people down. It just doesn't really sit well with me. Personally, you know, it just doesn't feel right. I don't think that's how, how God is. I don't think that's how God acts. The logic here seems to be something like this. If God were that type of God, if God were a God who judged, a God who enacted vengeance, a God who acted with this type of justice, even violence, if that were who God really was, I, w- I wouldn't actually love that God. I'd hate him. I'd hate him. Bingo. This is what we were saying earlier. This is our natural disposition toward God. The argument seems to be, well, if I'd hate him, that couldn't possibly be the true God. It's a false premise. You're assuming that your heart is a barometer of what's true. And what the Bible says is the exact opposite. Your heart is naturally turned against the real God because of the claims he makes on you. So to say, well, that God can't be the real God because I'd hate that God. I'd hate a God like that. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, this tendency to remake God in a way that we ourselves can deal with, can handle, that is itself a manifestation of our hatred toward the real God. Why make up a new God? Why make up a a fake God, a little God? Because you hate the real one. You don't want to admit that you hate the real one. You don't want to admit that you're God's enemy. The best way to hide hatred toward God from yourself, from others, is instead of just being honest about it, to instead make up a real God that you can worship and pretend that you're at peace with God when really you're at war with God. You say, well, my God is like this, and, and I can worship that God. I can bow down before that God, but all the while maintaining control. There's a, there's a liberal version of this, and there's a conservative version of this. The liberal version is what I just said, you know, not believing that God is truly a God of justice and of judgment, and so you can kind of do whatever you want. The conservative version, which is almost worse, Jesus spent a lot more time combating this particular version when he was on earth, is to not believe that God is a God of justice, but to, to say, I can't believe in a God of mercy. I can't believe in a God who would just accept anybody, no matter what they've done, if they just repent. If there was a God like that, I'd hate him. I would hate a God like that. So my God, he deals with people fair and square. My God, he does to people what they've done to others, and you know, according to your works, it'll be done to you, and, and there's no mercy for my God. And you know what that gives me the right to do is look down on anyone who acts immorally. Two different versions of the same thing. Both are ways of creating 
a false god, a little god that you can worship so you can maintain control. And both are evidence of a heart that hates God, of a heart that's set against God, of being God's enemy. You've got to surrender. You have to surrender to the real God, who's someone that you may not like certain aspects of, but he's God and you're not. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. That's why we talk about surrender so much around here, because it's the, the heart of beginning a relationship with God. You have to give up this hatred toward him that you may not even know that you were harboring. And the Bible says at the end, everybody's going to surrender. You know, at the end, everybody's knees are going to buckle. But the message of the prophets and of John the Baptist and of Jesus himself and of the early Christian apostles, one consistent message all through I don't understand the particulars of it, but I know that everybody says the same thing, which is it's a lot better for you if you make that choice first of your own accord than if it's made for you. You're a lot better off if you choose to kneel on your own rather than waiting until your knees buckle. You know, we see it here in the passage. Jesus, uh, when he's in the garden, the, the soldiers come. They say, where's Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am, and they all fall back. Their knees buckle. It's like the glory is leaking out just for a second. You know, he's holding it back, but it leaks out just for a second. The um, Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's that line, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And it's like the veil is lifted here just for a moment. The glory is revealed, their knees buckle. But he holds it back. He holds it back and goes to the cross. What the book of Revelation says very clearly is that when he comes again, he's not going to hold it back. Surrender. It's the first thing that, that Jesus is going to do when he comes again is triumph over his enemies. The second thing he's going to do when he comes again is he's going to take all power unto himself. He's going to receive all glory. The second part of the passage here, the, the first passage, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Psalm 72, it says his, his kingdom extends from sea to sea. His name will endure forever. He receives all glory and if you look at the bottom passage here from Philippians chapter 2, starting with uh, the bolded therefore about halfway through the passage. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He takes all power and he receives all glory. Now what we're going to talk about next week, we're going to focus on this image again, and next week we're going to talk about the particulars of what he does with the power. What is the agenda of his administration? He becomes king. What's he going to do with, with this power? You know, he's got a 100% approval rating. He can do, implement whatever policies he wants. What's it going to look like? That's what we're going to talk about next week, this, this new kingdom under Jesus. This morning I just want to focus in on one aspect of, of his rise to power, which is the path he, he took to get there, the rise itself. I want to focus in on how did he end up in this position of glory and prominence and, and universal power. And the answer the Bible gives to that is um, he got there not just kind of after he was humbled, after he went to the cross, but because. It, the Bible talks about a very strong causal link. If you look again at that passage we were just reading, starting now at the, the top of it. So this is the bottom passage starting at the beginning. Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, 
he made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating type of death of all. Therefore, therefore, it's a causal link. It's not just, well, he was humbled and then happy ending, he happened to be exalted. It's nice that it all turned out. It's this, and then because of that, this other. One follows from the other. He was exalted because he humbled himself. He humbled himself in order to be exalted. One follows from the other logically, necessarily, not just in sequence. The Bible doesn't only say that they're logically connected, causally connected. It also says this is not a one-off thing. This is not just a, well, it happened that way for Jesus only. It says rather, make this your model. Jesus is the, the prototype. He's the paradigmatic case of something that is a universal law in God's world. Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And elsewhere, all, all throughout Scripture, it says, be like this, do this, do the same thing, with the same motivations. Humble yourself to be exalted. It's a lifestyle that's commended to us by Jesus. And then there's another lifestyle that's commended to us by Satan. Satan takes the opposite approach, which is to exalt himself. Jesus lowers himself, Satan exalts himself. And Jesus says, be like me, and Satan says, from Eden all the way through, be like me. Try it like this. This works. And what a lot of people don't realize or don't admit is that it does. It does work. Satan's method of operating, Satan's approach to life, is pretty effective for a time. Satan exalts himself against God. He says, why should I worship you? Why should I submit to you? I'm just as worthy as you are. And from that, he gets to be prince of the world. From that, he gets to rule. He gets to have power. And all the beings in the universe, who's the second most worshipped? Satan, by far. There's tons of churches of Satan here in this city and all over the world. God and then Satan. He's number two. He got to be number two just by saying, I'm the best. Just by self-promotion. Self-promotion works to some extent. This, I mean, Donald Trump can tell you this. You know, you just, you can kind of drum yourself up and get quite a ways from it. But it only works for a time. I'm not comparing Donald Trump to Satan. I, and I, he's, I'm, anyway. Um, so I was going to say something else, but I won't. Um, so it works for a time. It's not like it's just this dead end. Nobody would do it if it didn't work. Nobody would take this approach if it didn't work, but it only works short term. If you look on your outline in the back of your program, this is the third passage down from Revelation 12. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Compared to the passage we just read, therefore God exalted him. He humbled himself, therefore God exalted him. Satan exalts himself, and at the end he is hurled down. Jesus says this all the time. He says, Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a rule for everybody. It's not just how it worked for me. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever lays down his life will find true life. Those aren't riddles. They're not like impenetrable, wise sayings. It's just common sense advice. 
just common sense advice about how the world really works. Saying, if you're smart, you'll do it like this. If you're smart, you'll do it like this because this is how it's going to turn out. This is how it always turns out. This is true on a small scale. You know, this is true on like a, a career scale. On the, if you look at just the a lifetime, you know, it's true. But far more importantly, it's true on the grander scale. It's true on the scale of this life and the life to come. And it's however far into the future you're able to look, that's the extent to which you're able to benefit from this perspective. You know, if you can look to next week, if I humble myself now, I could be exalted next week. That's one thing. If you can look to next year or the next 10 years, that's another. But if you can look to eternity, then you're on to something. If I humble myself for this lifetime, then I'll be exalted. Then all of a sudden you're able to benefit from this advice in in a totally different way. I think that um, with this surrender thing, this, you know, I'm supposed to surrender to God, I'm supposed to sacrifice, I'm supposed to live my life for others. I think that it, if without this peace, it can come across as kind of like, so I'm just, what, I'm just supposed to like give up? I'm supposed to not care about how things turn out for me? I'm supposed to um, j- just do away with all of my ambition? And that's not what the Bible says at all. What the Bible says is you're supposed to redirect it. You're supposed to redirect your ambition towards something else, towards something greater, not to, to do away with it. In fact, I actually think that it works best, following Jesus works best for, for those that have the highest level of ambition. What I mean by that is, so it, you, you can think about it in terms of um, three different levels of ambition. This is not in scripture. This is just me talking. You can tell me later if I'm totally wrong. So three different levels of ambition. Level one is just, I want to be comfortable and I want to be happy. I want to have some friends. You know, I want family. I want my kids to be healthy. I want to have a place to live. I want to not hate my job. I want to have a little bit of discretionary income. You know, be able to go go out to pizza, go to the movies, go on a vacation once a year. I want to be comfortable and happy. And um, if you, if this is you, you know, you probably didn't move to New York voluntarily. If you're smart, you know, this is this is the worst place in this country I can think of for living that type of life. It's just not conducive to it. So you go somewhere else, which is fine. So that's level one. I want to be comfortable and happy. Level two is step it up a notch. I want to be successful and significant. I don't want to just be comfortable and happy. I want, to, I want to have some degree of success. I want to do well. I want to be looked at with some degree of respect and, and admiration. I want to have a little bit more than the average. I want to do a little bit better than average. I want to be successful and significant. I want to actually do something that kind of matters. I want to do some good in the world. I want to make a positive difference. I want to be successful and significant, not just comfortable and happy. And New York is a, is a good place for pursuing that level of ambition. You know, there's opportunities here that don't exist elsewhere for success and for for significance on some level. There's a third level. There's also plenty of these people in the city, maybe plenty of them in in this room. I don't really know. There's a third level of ambition that people are a little bit more hesitant to talk about, um, especially, you know, the the older and wiser and more kind of world-hardened they get. Um, but a lot of people still, if they're honest with themselves, feel this way. The third level is I don't want to just be comfortable and happy. I don't want to just be successful and significant. I want to be legendary. I want to be, you know, I want to be immortal. And adults don't talk that way. You know, adults don't admit that to each other. When you're a little kid, you, you kind of are more comfortable with that. You know, boys, little boys, 
want to be legendary on the athletic field. They want to have glory. They want to be immortal. Little girls, um, I don't I actually don't know what little girls want to do because I've never been one. But the little girls want, I'm sure, immortality in some other way too. You know, when you're a kid, you want that. You're comfortable with that. It's no big deal. And then you become an adult and you're like, oh, right, people aren't supposed to want that. That's really weird. You're not supposed to, to talk that way. You know, I want to be legendary. I want to be immortal. Okay, that's... You know, let's leave that talk behind. So most people don't admit it to each other. Most people don't even admit it to themselves. I think some people still feel that way. Somewhere, you know, even if they pushed it way down, somewhere they still have this hungering to be legendary, to be immortal. They have a hungering for, for glory. I think that Christianity, that following Christ, works best for people who have that burning desire for distinction. It works best because... It's a powerful motivating force to endure these things that Jesus is, is going to ask you to endure if you follow him. He says, embrace suffering, embrace sacrifice, embrace surrender, embrace these things that are so difficult for this goal, for this end, for glory, for this sort of immortality, to be legendary. And if you want that and you're okay with that and you admit that, it's a powerful motivating force. You you're thinking the way that Jesus thought. You're thinking the way that Paul thought. You're thinking the way the great saints have thought. Wow, this is worth it. This is worth it. And it helps you to make those, those sacrifices. It helps you to live an other-centered, God-centered life instead of being all about yourself. So I think that, you know, if, you're, if your kind of mentality is, well, you know, that's cool, but it's just not me. I don't really care about that. That's really silly to want to be, you know, successful at that level, um, that's, that's fine. There's going to be part of it that you're always missing a little bit because you're, you're never going to kind of be able to find that, that motivation to really want to do this at the level that, that God asks of us. I will say as we close, just to those of you that do feel that, dis, that uh, desire for distinction, you know, that ambition for kind of being set apart, it, it makes sense if you're going to go to all the trouble of um, earning that, you know, of living a life of distinction, of pursuing that type of glory, it makes a lot of sense to do it in an arena that actually counts, that's actually going to last. There is a building in Cooperstown, New York. There's another one in um, Canton, Ohio. There's another building in Springfield, Massachusetts. They've got lots of trophies and jerseys, names on the wall. They're not, they will not be there. Those buildings will not be there forever. Those towns will not be there forever. There's a street in Hollywood, California, that has these little plaques with stars in them cemented into the ground. That street will not be there forever. There's statues all over the city, plaques all over the city. They're not going to last. If you're going to go to the trouble of living this type of life, you might as well do it in an arena that lasts. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would give us the courage and the strength first to surrender to you, to surrender to your lordship, to surrender to your mastery over us, and then second, to follow you in a life of sacrifice for the reward that awaits. God, give us the faith to believe it. Give us courage and strength. Go with us. Convict us in our hearts that Living any other way is small, 
and unimportant, but to live in pursuit of your path for us is the only life that really matters. It's in your name we pray. Amen.